Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo! And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter. And you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email uh, subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books oh, to get you excited. And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business uh, this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May good. the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Mission Daily. Today's guest is Rob Wiblin. Rob is the director of research at 80,000 Hours, an organization which aims to find the highest impact ways for talented graduates to do good throughout their career. 80,000 Hours was going through Y Combinator when Rob joined them back in 2015. Rob is a fascinating guy, and I hope you enjoy today's interview. It's a dangerous one, um, but it can work in your favor really well if you yeah. deploy it at the right times. So. Rob, I guess we cool. started. Let's go for we it. We already yeah. started. The We're already doing it. So. In a way. <laughs> um, thanks for yeah. joining us. Yeah, uh, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on. So you're based in the Bay Area. Yeah, we're actually, well, I'm I'm currently uh, living in Berkeley, uh, but we're in the process of all moving to London. I'm the last person off the ship to to, to get out of uh, California and move back to the UK. Very cool. What's the reason for the shift, if you don't uh, mind sharing? Well, uh, so we have five British staff members, three Australians and one American. So I think we just had a lot more, um, you know, family, friends living there. So we came here for a while and then decided, I guess, that would, would for the long term, would rather settle down where, where we know a lot of people. Which is a great idea, right? You know, you come out to the Bay Area to get things started, to get to know people out here and then go back to the hometown to grow things. Yeah, we originally came out uh, for a couple of months for Y Combinator back in 2015. And then I guess now, yeah, we've come out for another two years. And I think we've met a lot of really uh, smart people, uh, made, made a lot of connections, and uh, we're definitely going to stay in touch with them. We'll be back here, back here all the time. I love it. What's your thought process behind Y Combinator? Because I know at the time, I think that was one of the first nonprofits that was admitted, right? Yeah, I think it was the second second uh, round okay. of it. 
Uh, so you're asking why, why we applied? Why did you apply? What was your thought process there? And then uh, what was the experience like? Well, Y Combinator just seems to be cutting edge in terms of giving, giving advice on how you can grow a project. At that time, we were only three staff members. So it's a very early days. Uh, we didn't really know what the product should be. We had like some evidence that what we were doing was kind of working or that there was a model that, that could be built here for changing people's careers and improving them. But we didn't know a whole lot about management. We didn't know so much about how do you build a startup? How do you hire? All that kind of thing. It seemed just potentially incredibly useful to go through and gain all that wisdom that they've had from supporting hundreds of companies over the years, now thousands. The experience of going through it, I think it was very useful in terms of improving our internal systems, figuring out like what metrics do we want to track? What processes should we have like over a week or over a month uh, for sure. you know, structuring the work? To, so uh, for example, we have like bout structures now. So we go between like one month to three months of like work. We have uh, each team has particular goals that they're trying to hit by the end of that bout. And then you take a break and then you like start another bout. So it has like more of a cyclical structure. And oh, every week, yeah, yeah, every week we have like meetings with the whole team where we look at our metrics, uh, like see, you know, are we on track to hit our goals? Uh, that kind of thing we, we, we weren't doing before. And when you first got into Y Combinator, I know you were the second nonprofit there. So um, I'm curious if you can share any. Was there a bit of hostility between the nonprofits and for-profit startups? Was there because the, it's an open question if they're going to continue the program for nonprofits at that point. So that that's a bit you're, you're taking a bit of a risk on your part, right? Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think for us, it would have been useful even if they closed, closed the program down sure. immediately afterwards. Certainly don't recall any hostility between the nonprofit founders and the and the for-profit founders. I think there was a range of views uh, on the Y Combinator team about uh, like how useful the nonprofit program was. It's kind of uh, people have different ideologies about, you know, how many problems can be solved by businesses and like, is there room sure. for, for nonprofits to really fill in much of a gap there? I think there obviously is. For, for some things, it's very hard to Definitely. build a business model to solve a problem. And I think most of the most of the partners at Y Combinator thought that, but 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 not all of them. Some some of them were a bit skeptical. And and there is this issue that Y Combinator is very focused on building organizations very quickly, like making them hit a really large scale. It's much harder for nonprofits in general to do that because they don't have a very good revenue model where like right. people benefiting from the thing causes more money to come in and allows them to grow. That's one problem. Plus two, you're talking about a scenario with nonprofits where you might get just the completely, completely wrong type of people to join too. If you're, if it's, you're too focused on growth, on money, because I know for startups that it's not something people like to discuss a lot. It's the Silicon Valley ethos is like, oh, growth solves all problems, but growth can turn into cancer as, as well. Like there's a right size for organizations to accomplish their goals. So I definitely agree with that. And, and that's a, a potentially a bigger problem for nonprofits because it's much harder to know when you're accomplishing a goal, I think, as a nonprofit. Because right. as, as a for-profit, if you're selling uh, to customers, if you have revenue growth, that's a very good sign. For nonprofits, it's much harder to say what metric actually you should be tracking. Like what is it that corresponds with, with completing your goal? Which is fascinating because, yeah, so what metrics are you tracking? Can you share any? Yeah, so so the bottom line is impact-adjusted significant plan changes, which is a piece okay. of jargon which corresponds to we basically keep a record of everyone whose career we think we've improved, and we try to figure out you know how how much difference did we make, like what would they have done otherwise, and you know how valuable is, is the contribution on the on the margin. So how much more social impact do we think they'll have with what they're doing now relative to what they they were going to have before, which is obviously very hard to measure. Uh, there's a lot of guessing that goes into that, but I think it's much better than just kind of guessing each week about how much impact we've had. Like actually being able Definitely. to say, well, we think this person uh, is like really going to go do something useful now because of something something that we said to them. And obviously, the model is going to keep improving over time too, which is you got to start somewhere and start measuring it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, could you share any specific examples maybe of uh, people or whether they're anonymous or folks who came to you, didn't really know too much about what you were up to, and then completely shifted careers in a different direction? 
Yeah, that's interesting. I think by and large, the specific stories are, are fairly sensitive. Uh, so we, tr we try to keep sure. hold on to that data because I want to share because people, we, we like often know like, you know, their most innermost thoughts about their career. They have to be willing to share that with us. Because we've had many cases where I think people were just planning to go into maybe just start a business in general or just go into consulting, do some professional career. And now are interested in perhaps working more on policy, more on kind of security, more on like civilizational stability. I think that's one of the biggest shifts you get is people thinking, I'm moving from thinking, well, I just want to like have a normal career. I just want to like make some money or like yeah, build a business, just like have any professional job that, that has esteem towards thinking, I really want to steer the, the future of civilization and make sure that things go really well. So they're thinking like we promote this idea of uh, long term value about potentially the, the highest leverage opportunities to improve the world are things that will change how well uh, the future of humanity goes over hundreds or thousands or possibly even millions of years. And that's not something that's on most people's radar uh, when they're thinking about their career. <laughs> And it's something that sounds very intimidating at first because you can fall into the trap of thinking, how am I ever going to do that? How am I going to find the right people? How am I going to get at a place where my skills actually contribute to an, an organization's mission and impact something 200 years in the future? That can feel daunting at first. However, when you start basically considering the scope of the opportunities out there, you can start to identify some, some obvious choices. So let's take the uh, for-profit ones. Like if you're passionate about preventing a catastrophe, like go to SpaceX, go to Palantir. If you want to stop conflicts in the future from being kinetic, you can go to Palantir and preempt them before they start. Those are a couple examples, but what are your favorite examples? Just to back up a little bit. So if, if you think that what, because like, there's potentially so, so many people, so much potential value that could be generated over the very long term, then you want to think, uh, what things could we plausibly do now that would affect things for a very long time? Because most things that you do, if, if you don't do them now, they'll be done later anyway. Right. So you have to find some opportunity that is not going to be, that like that people in the future can't just do once we you know, have a larger economy, have more wisdom. So there's a couple of different things. The one that most people have gravitated to, at least so far, is worrying about the possibility of human extinction or civilizational collapse. So if humanity goes extinct because of some terrible mistake that we make now, it's very clear that future generations won't be able to fix that problem because they won't be around. That's like a unique opportunity that we have today that future generations won't have is to fix these like the risk of like civilizational collapse. Sure. Now there's a bunch of different risks there. Uh, one would be like nuclear war, which is well known. That's like, I think there's an underestimated, or people underestimate the risk of a nuclear war between uh, the US and Russia or U uh, US and China, though I think it's not super high. In terms of other risks, there's a risk of a huge pandemic. We have already had like pandemics that have killed several percent of people. And there's no reason in principle why you couldn't have one that could kill, you know, 10 to 90 percent of people if we got extremely unlucky. And of course, there's more people around now. So there's more diseases, diseases out there that are constantly mutating and right. have the potential to get a lot worse. We also have synthetic biology, which creates like new possibilities for kind of accidental creation of diseases that are much worse than, than what nature would typically throw up. So that's, that's the second one. I guess a third one that people talk about a lot is artificial intelligence. Think about like what new technologies could, could appear in the future that could change how, just change everything in a really big way and potentially upend them in a negative direction. There's a bunch of ways that people are concerned that you know, artificial intelligence could lead to wars or could just result in kind of humans being cut out of the decision loop because right. artificial intelligence ends up making most of the choices. And if it doesn't share our values, then, then that could go quite badly. Uh, then I'd say or before, if it falls into the hands of the like, wrong person or group, it's going to yeah. impact every other example you just mentioned there in a it could accelerate those threats, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe a fourth one I'll quickly mention is like risk of totalitarianism or kind of a political collapse where you get stuck in a stuck in a political situation uh, that's very bad that you can't get out of. Possibilities there are technologies that could allow you to change people's opinions too easily. So you just don't have the kind of dynamic political system that we have today. Or potentially you could genetically engineer humans so that they're very pliable and like not inclined to rebel. So you again, just get, like get stuck in a local maximum and can never get out of that. Slightly far-fetched, but like uh, conceivable with technology that might appear in the next few hundred years. And some people would argue it's already been going on to a certain extent, or it's always going on. Like whether you think about like Ian Banks culture series, like where, where he says that they're basically living under uh, gerontocracy, like that's 
a risk that any society falls under, right, is where the old are way too aggressive on the young. Yeah, I guess I guess we see that to, to some extent now. It would have to get a lot so, worse for to some to, to, to some be, extent. To be an extinction yeah, risk, but. you know, being uh, in the U.S. where it's like first world problems galore, like you can't really make too hard of a case for that, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's uh, it's definitely happening to a certain extent, um, and I think that culture is one of the biggest risks here, where it's uh, something that's invisible, it's amorphous, it's hard to pin down what it is, but it impacts daily decisions and behavior. So. Yeah. So, so then the fifth one I'll quickly mention is a great power war, uh, which is kind of like having World War II, but again, with modern technology, probably wouldn't lead directly to extinction, but it could like throw civilization so off track that we like nev we don't really have the capability to recover from that. And then the sixth one would just be uh, like something else that we haven't thought of yet. And there's probably like a pretty broad category of like risks to society that we haven't, haven't really uh, figured out and that, that we should be going out and trying to identify and diffuse. And with the risk of World War III, this is something I'm uh, super paranoid about because uh, Americans love a good trilogy and uh, it's uh, a big problem. And I think war is something that the general populace now doesn't participate in or have any type of experience with. But the second you go overseas or if you talk to people in other countries, you're going to meet many more people who are familiar with war, with violence mm -hmm. and just how terrible it is. How are you thinking about and how are the people you're working with thinking about stopping a uh, large scale conflict? Uh, so that's one. We currently have nine staff. So as an organization that's still fairly young, we've had to specialize a little bit. Uh, so the ones that we're more focused on at the moment, we're, we're particularly focused on artificial intelligence as kind of our first foray into this. Sure. We know a decent amount about the, the biotechnology and pandemic risks. And then we're going to try to expand into these other categories over time as we can build expertise. Gotcha. It's kind of this risk. If we try to tackle all of them at once, then we'll do a bad job of like six different risks. Hey, that's like a great a good place job to start. Yeah. yeah. So what's, uh, what research are you following or what's uh, on your radar right now? Uh, so I have this podcast, the 80,000 Hours podcast. Uh, Which is awesome. Go check it out. Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks so much. So we do like very long form interviews. I think late, lately the typical episode length is about three hours. So oh, wow. I really love to. Oh, and you've done a bunch of research about this too that shows longer episodes are might be better for you. Yeah, this yeah. is an uh, Yeah, just as an aside. So uh, Apple Podcasts recently Sorry started. Sorry to interrupt, but it's, oh, no, it's fine. It. we'll come back to it. Yeah, so Apple Podcasts recently started giving uh, people uh, information on like how much of the episodes people listening to, right. which was previously just kind of a mystery. And, and I was able to see we have episodes all the way from one hour long to four hours long. And I could see as the episode becomes longer, how do people drop off and like listen to a tiny and tiny fraction of it? And they do, but only slightly. So I think like the episode length that would maximize the amount of time that people spend listening to it is about eight hours. Uh, and so <laughs> I, I've made, I've had to make this argument to other people doing interviews that they should make them longer because like once you pay the fixed cost of getting someone in the studio and like looking up their work and getting to understand it, why not talk for two hours rather than one? Because people are almost going to listen to as much of the second hour as the first. So you get to go into like other things that they haven't said before. This is so important. So we kind of stumbled on this, I would say a month and a half ago when we were interviewing different executives of large companies, whether they're CEOs or CMOs or CIOs or CTOs of publicly traded companies, if they would agree to do an interview, in which case many of them did, they would come to the studio and we would do an hour. There would be so much left to talk about. There would be a huge amount of things to talk about. So our thought process was, why don't we just expand this? And the question is though, how much can we expand it? Because you know, if somebody's budgeting an entire afternoon to do something, you might as well go all in and create yeah. the, like, the shining city on the hill piece of content type thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think you, you might worry that people would be less willing to come on if they mm -hmm. have to dedicate so much time to it. But I think they're actually more willing to because it means that they're not just doing an interview where they're saying the same thing that they've said before many right. times. Uh, and also it means that they're creating this like 
archive of their views at that time in like great depth that sure. they can then point people to. It's like, this is the one thing to, to listen to from me that explains my, my opinions. Because how much of an executive's time, whether you're at a nonprofit or a for-profit, is spent explaining or re-explaining the same things over and over, which exactly. is a lot of the job. Yeah, so. something you just want to create kind of an exemplar. And yes. Everyone reads that, just the one best article. It's hey, like, we it's, talked it's about most it efficient. And yeah. then, uh, you know, over time, you might need to redo that episode or essentially like re-release that book or whatever you were talking about. But it's much, much easier than trying to uh, explain everything to everyone. Exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. impossible. Do, do an episode like that every couple of years once you've got a, yeah, got a whole set of new opinions. So yeah, if you're interested in that 80,000 hours podcast, search for that now. You can subscribe. Uh, help me hit my metrics. Um, <laughs> uh, so let's maybe we can go back to the AI thing. Sure. So yeah, there's kind of two broad categories of work that people are engaging in to try to make sure that if artificial intelligence does significantly improve over the next couple of decades, potentially like approach, you know, human levels of reasoning or, or, or better, that it goes well. It's kind of the technical side where people who are actually working on machine learning, trying to figure out how do we design machine learning systems that remain aligned with human interests and human goals, even as they become like much more creative and much more intelligent about how they're accomplishing things and kind of think for themselves to a greater degree. We want artificial intelligence to potentially be be creative in trying to solve problems, to see things that we weren't that we weren't going to think of. But we don't want it to kind of diverge from the original like intentions mm. that we had. We don't want it to create outcomes that we didn't foresee, that we didn't imagine it might think were consistent with what we've said. There is this general problem that you like we, we constantly are telling computers to do things, but then it's like kind of not quite what we intended. And you see this with machine learning systems all the time that we say you know try to get a high score, and then they find some kind of cheat that you didn't imagine. That, that allows them to get the high score in this game. Yeah, well, we're using code and language in a sense to interact with these machines, which these symbols are very imperfect because they exactly. don't show the machines what we mean. We can't transmit context or the machine has no reference point for emotions or biology in a sense. Like it's not even close to being a biological thing. So how can we start to show these machines what we our intentions are, if that makes any sense? Yeah, so... I I don't know, I don't know ML. So yeah, other people on the show to talk about this more. I guess one thing is you want it to constantly, at least initially, you want it to be referring back to kind of human judgment uh, all the time. So, so past examples, uh, similar right. scenarios. So that, that's an obvious approach you could try to take is that it tries to like build its own model of what you want by constantly asking you questions. I mean, you're like, is this what you wanted? And then it goes back and then comes to this. Is this what you wanted? Sure. Uh, a challenge there is that that potentially slows down the learning process a lot because it can like run tons of simulations inside itself. But then humans don't have the time to be giving feedback uh, in that much level of depth. So from a technical point of view, uh, no, OpenAI and DeepMind and other groups have been trying to figure out how do you get, uh, I guess, like machine learning systems to pull out as much information as they can from the feedback that they're getting from humans so that they can actually build an accurate model of like what's the underlying intent there. They've made some progress, but it's like there's still a lot of work to be done because, uh, for example, when the circumstance changes, then kind of the, the, the feedback that people have given in the past isn't potentially going to generalize to the new situation. Sure. And that's a real issue that they face is like currently ML systems don't really have a good process for evaluating when they're out of the depth, when the situation has changed enough that like they can't rely on the data that they've had before. That's just kind of not something that's been built into it. So that's like another thing that has to be figured out. You also want machine learning systems to know when they should stop. I guess in particular, we want them to know that if, even if we've given them some particular goal, if we kind of want them to stop, or if we like feel that we've, we've misspecified the goal, they shouldn't continue pursuing it. Right. That also turns out to be like quite hard to program in because it's like you've given it this particular goal. It's just going to keep trying to going for that, right? And uh, as of the situation right now, compute resources are finite. So you can't give it the problem of solving entropy in the universe because it's going to exhaust yeah. all resources yeah. on Earth. So, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so this is called corrigibility, the capacity for something to stop itself from like accomplishing the goal that's been specified at the right time. Gotcha. Um, so there's like all, all these kind of technical problems. There's 
a great paper that people could read if they're interested in learning a little bit more about this. It's pretty easy, I think, for a layperson to understand called uh, Concrete Problems in AI Safety, which describes a bunch of different failure modes that you currently get with machine learning, hmm. ways that they don't do what we intend. Also explains potentially how those problems could get worse as AI becomes more advanced and you know has more responsibility in society. And I guess is trying to point towards like technical solutions to those. So, so that's one angle. Then you've also got the kind of strategy and policy side. Given that ML or AI might end up you know, playing a very big role in business, in government, in decision-making in society, how do we make sure that that is scaled up or that that's deployed in a sensible way? And kind of what role, what role, if any, should the government have? And how do we make sure that the organizations that are developing this AI do it in a safe way? Like, how do we make the economics and the politics of this play out such that they want to uh, design very robust systems, that they don't deploy things before they're safe? And in particular, how do we avoid an arms race between different organizations? So if you have multiple businesses, potentially like all developing AI, there's kind of competitive pressure that forces them to potentially deploy it before they're completely sure that it's that it's safe to do so because they want they want to make money soon uh, otherwise completely. they get crowded out. And um, this is such a large opportunity too. So just to put it in perspective, it's probably like the first company that even comes close to a level five self-driving car or some type of general augmented intelligence. I mean, you're talking about what it, it would be instantly worth like ten times their current market cap. They would be worth a couple trillion dollars. Like, is that safe to say? You think? If you could design an AI that was able to do human level reasoning, like right. at an acceptable cost, I mean, it'd be worth tens of trillions of dollars market cap, like huge. That, that's where almost all of current global GDP is going is to pay humans to complete tasks. Right. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the rewards here are like potentially larger, I think, than any other business that's really existed because you would just be like about two thirds of like global GDP go to labor, go to humans to move things around and do thinking tasks. If you can just automate that, this product is potentially going to be making 60 or trillion, 60 or 70 trillion dollars of revenue per year. Uh, you know, and then the economy keeps getting bigger because it's going to be better at that. So, Which is why companies like Open AI that shifted from nonprofit to for profit, they supposedly have capped their investor earnings at 100x whatever they invest, yeah. um, which I, I think is fascinating. But I would love to hear your thoughts on that situation. And yeah, what you think is the future for open AI now? Yeah, interesting. I only heard about that, that shift a few days ago, and I haven't read their blog post about it, so I sh shouldn't speak too much out of turn. I think it potentially makes sense as a, another way of growing the project more quickly to, to make some returns so that they, I guess they can reinvest in, the, in their work. Sure. Nothing wrong with that. I suppose uh, you, you might worry about them drifting from the original goal of right. producing AI that benefits everyone if, if they're now saying, well, you know, we want to keep some of the money. I know the people there personally, and I, and I have quite a lot of confidence in them. So I suspect that this is probably a good move. Yeah, the people I met from the team seem to be great people. You know, it's a situation where you can't know everything about someone but i think just interacting with someone a couple times is a pretty good measure of like what type of person they are yeah um, i've done several interviews with people at open ai and i think their desire to make ai go well for the whole of humanity is 100 percent sincere genuine yeah, yeah for sure so outside of machine learning and ai is that is that the singular would you say that's the singular focus of your your company or uh it's like it's a pretty big focus right now but uh no not at all i so this is another thing we're interested in working on is building kind of effective altruism as a movement, like improving the intellectual foundations, getting ensuring that we understand better, you know, how do we measure impact? How do we figure out what does a lot of good in the world? And then getting, I guess, more people to get involved in doing that, do, doing that research and then also encouraging people to act on it. Uh, that's another area. We are just tentatively taking steps into figuring out how do we improve relations between US and US and China, which we think is like a potentially very so big important. challenge in, in the 20th century and like something that relatively few people are working on relative to the stakes of that. So we have, we have some, some like tentative people who are like looking into what can plausibly be done there that's not being done. Anything you can share about that? Because this is a topic I'm really, really interested in because that is the, we need to get that solved immediately. And I think that's going to be solved if we can have just a lot more communication, interaction, and then uh, the cross-pollination of uh, investment and different type of companies partnering up. There's the famous quote, like when goods and services don't cross borders, armies will. And it definitely is the case here, I think, with the US and China. So what's your, what's your read on it? 
It's a somewhat sensitive issue, obviously, so sure. probably shouldn't talk about it too much. But I guess uh, reading Graham's uh, Destined for War is probably a very good primer on this. It's a book where he describes how in the past, when you've had shifts in like the balance of power globally between like one empire and kind of the next one, how very often they end up fighting one another because the, the group that was more powerful in the past uh, like is not willing to cede control to the other and they fear what will happen once they've done that. Even though at the time people say they shouldn't fight because this is pointless, this would be so destructive and both sides are going to lose, they, they repeatedly do this. So he tries to learn lessons from history of like how, what could we do that would make it less likely that, that the US and China would, would fight one another. He thinks that it's like completely unnecessary for the US and China to have conflict, that they have like much more interests in common than they do apart. There's very little, like China does not threaten any of the core interests of the United States in practice, not even if they had a much more powerful military. Uh, they're not like threatening to attack like the US mainland, but not, not, not at any point. In as much as they conflict, it's usually over things that the US just does not ultimately care that much about. They're just like not core interests. But there are just lots of examples of things happening that kind of no one really wanted. No one really wanted World War One. No one wanted it to turn out the way it did, but, but it happened nonetheless because you end up in these traps. So trying to figure out for example, it could be very useful to have transparency about the military prowess of different countries. Because one way that you can have a conflict between two countries is if one side thinks that they're more powerful than the other, and the other side thinks that they're more powerful than the other because they've miscalculated. If you have transparency about like who would actually win in a conflict, then that potentially prevents it from happening because one side will know that they'll lose and they won't do it. Um, gotcha. Yeah. And so I'll, let me push back just a little bit with that. So sure. I, I think that simulating conflicts is very, very uh, dangerous to a certain extent. And I, I think it's one of those subjects where I'm speculating here, but would you want to keep that done basically behind closed doors and then have the type of media or the type of content that you do put in the public arena to be a narrative of an ideally like actual collaboration? So basically like my hypothesis here is that you just want way more collaboration in any type of communication. Basically the rate at which you can accelerate communication and interactions between two different groups that's what you need to focus on is the metric to accelerate because I, yeah, I just get worried that, you know, when you're in the military speaking from experience, it's very easy to, that's your job. Your job is to win at those conflicts. Your, your job is not to preempt them. Yeah. And yeah. So what are your thoughts on the public discussion around this? Is there an opportunity for people to get involved and start working with China, you know, learn Mandarin or to basically remove that view of them as the other and start to view them as a collaborator? What do you think? Yeah. So thinking from a, from a public point of view, I've kind of spitballed this idea that it would be good to have an organization that just promotes like how wonderful China is. So there's like things to not like about China, but there's a lot to like about China and about Chinese people. China has done many things that have benefited the United States. You know, its economic development has like brought so many like cheap goods and new innovations here mm -hmm. to the United States. And that's not something that like anyone really has an incentive to, to promote. If you're running as a politician, kind of, the, it's much better to run a message of like, oh, China is like beating us in this way to create this kind of competitive idea. It's like, oh, we're getting screwed over by this other country. But I think the reality is, the U.S. overall has benefited enormously from China's rise, at least so far, and can potentially continue to do so uh, mm. if they build economic ties. So, uh, so far, for example, China has mostly been copying like U.S. innovations rather than developing its own ones. But it's approaching the technological frontier in a lot of areas and is at the point where it's kind of doing best practice in many different industries. And now it needs to innovate for itself in order to, to increase productivity. And that's the point at which like the U.S. can start benefiting back from all of the research that, that the U.S. is doing, all of the fixed costs that the Chinese incur. The U.S. can benefit sure. from that through its, through its own research. And there's like many other ways I think that the US stands to do like perfectly well to benefit from from the rise of China 
but there's not really many people going out in public and making that case. Yeah. I mean, poss possibly the Chinese government could fund people to do that, but I think then they would lose credibility. For someone who just believes this intellectually, who thinks actually, you know, we should be the US and China should be at, should be friends. There's like no reason for conflict, and there's like so many ways that we can benefit one another, and just goes out and sincerely promotes that message, not because they're like being paid to do so, but because they believe it. I think that that could potentially be be really useful, and it would also be very honest. I haven't like gotten feedback on whether there's ways that that could backfire. I'm always worried about like, giving any ideas in this area because I think in general people can underestimate. Especially with public campaigns, when they're speaking publicly, they can underestimate sure. like how much harm they can do by saying the wrong thing. Uh, but that's that's like, such an important point to remember, I think, yeah. because so many people, I think, throughout history, whether they were writers or philosophers who created books, their teachings, their ideas were applied in all the wrong ways, all the ways that yeah. they did not attend. And you can just go down the list, whether it's like Nietzsche or Karl Marx or you know anybody. It's dangerous putting ideas out there, right? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, we see that even just at the level of, you know, I write a blog post and then I see that people have totally misinterpreted it. But that's like such a small scale. It's like mm -hmm. me writing potentially to people who like are familiar with my work. And even then, like, I can't really communicate my ideas accurately. The most common thing is people kind of read the, the headline and the first paragraph and then they they, yes. they, they like lose all of the subtlety and then that can make the, the message inaccurate. But then if you're going out into the media, doing interviews on cable news, saying particular things. And then other people are kind of repeating it and changing it. Right. It becomes extremely hard to predict. What all the, the context gets taken out. And yeah, exactly. So, for example, like we could go out and try to promote our ideas in, in China. I think that we should be pretty cautious about doing that because we really want to understand how do people in China react to these mm -hmm. messages. Like it's obviously it's, it's a very different language, different culture. You kind of want to translate things correctly and you want to think, you know, how does this fit into the ideas that people already have? Because if you just go, I think if you just take many things in English, especially like kind of ideological things and translate them into Chinese directly and then just start promoting them, I suspect you're going to get a pretty bad reaction. And one that you Completely could have like agree. gotten if you just focus, focus grouped it and figured out, well, yeah, you know, actually with like some small modifications, or, like some changing in the language or some changing in how we like, where we situate this set of ideas, you can get a much better reaction. So I'm kind of in favor of people in general being cautious, not running their mouths, think carefully about what you're going to do uh, and like cross the river by feeling the stones. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think it's a great idea too, before you start to get too crazy about prescriptions for things to get direct experience on the ground or in person in those scenarios, because I, I can't even tell you like the number of different times where I had this conception or idea in my head about what something was, whether it's Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, a big tech company that I thought I knew. And then when I got on the ground in front of those people and I had direct experience in the physical world, in real life, IRL style, my whole view changed. Have you had that similar experience? I mean, obviously, like most people do, but what examples do you have from your life where you had this idea in your head about who somebody was and then you got into contact with them and realized that it just was not the case at all? To be honest, I think almost all the time, people tend to come across as a lot more aggressive online, for example, and their idea, well, almost always people's ideas come across as more naive and simplistic than they really are mm -hmm. across the board. And you just always have to correct for this, that people have only so much time they're writing things online, they're like speaking, they've got like a message that they like to send. I guess sometimes people are just actually naive. Sometimes they haven't thought about it. And you identify weaknesses in their view that they haven't thought of. But I think more often than not, at, at least in my experience, if you go and talk to them, they are aware of these potential objections. It's just sure. they, there's only so many hours in the day and they can't be addressing you know objections that you're coming up with in, in every single article. So I guess that's one thing that I always try to adjust for is that people are less stupid than they seem. That's and, a great and, reminder, yeah. When you're in person, you can see people thinking and you yes. get like all of these subtleties. When you're in writing, that often doesn't come across unless someone's been been very careful. Yeah, the written word, uh, so you're you familiar with uh, McLuhan at all and his uh, or his, his ideas about like linear print-based text, you know, that's left to right. There are a bunch of biases that creep in when you have a print culture, basically. So his theory was that any type of print culture wasn't going to be able to 
see and feel what other people meant as much as a culture that was based on togetherness, family, community, real world interactions kind of. So I think that's important to bring up here because we're increasingly behind screens and devices all day long. And we have filters that are put, whether they're social media networks or any anything like that, we have these filters that are put on our world. So what are your thoughts on social media and kind of like the future of effective altruism? Does social media have a role to play or is it going to inhibit a lot of your goals? Yeah, so uh, McLuhan's the uh, the medium is the message, yes. guy, right? Yeah. yeah, I guess, I mean, you see that enormously with social media, right? So you yes, got Twitter completely. is like 140 character tweets. So it's like, well, what do you get? You get like very short and abbreviated misunderstood <laughs> ideas. I mean, obviously that's going to be all the day case. long. Yeah, I think that the food bubble thing is interesting. I, I recently read a paper which suggested that actually people are less filtered on social media than they are uh, in real life. So obviously, yeah, you do have filters on it. social media, but then in real life you do as well. So you, yeah. know, you go to church, you go to school, you go to like your business. You've also selected there people who agree with you. Right. And it seems like there's more spontaneous discovery of people who disagree with you online. And it's possible that in fact, like that's what's driving people to get so angry online a lot of the time is that they're constantly encountering ideas that are conflict with what they believe. And so it like, makes thing. them outrage, right? Yeah. yeah, potentially could be good. I mean, it's, it's just very hard to know what the, yeah, where, where the balance slides there and it's uh, so new it's as a technology it's a almost brand new yeah i mean i think it's a it's a very important issue i've heard podcast episodes and uh, you know read essays about this and but I, I don't i don't know ultimately what we should be doing with social media it does seem so I, I imagine that the more wrong an idea was the more likely it was to be promoted the more likely someone was to post it uh, it seems like that's right, a, I believe you. Okay, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, but, go ahead. okay, but imagine that sure, hypothetically sure. for the sake of argument. It seems then that society would just go mad because, like, the more incorrect, like, if an idea is really wrong, then it gets copied, and then people hear it a lot, and then they kind of things that are true just kind of get crowded out. But we do partially have a system for that, which is that people want to post things that they hate, that they are outraged by, and so basically, the more terrible an idea is, the more the more either like more abhorrent it is. Yeah, the more it gets magnified, and the more people see it. And I think that's something that we should really try to minimize. I, I try for example to not post on my own social media like anything that I'm that I'm outraged about because you're participating in this in the system where like inaccurate ideas are getting pr- promoted more which is just terrible <laughs> it is and I think it it pushes everybody to the mindset where you're just on edge and there's some recent research that shows smartphones by themselves just trigger an anxiety so a person becomes more anxious the second you pick up your device uh, <laughs> almost because you associate it with all of the worst news that you've ever received through the device. That's what your brain is going to be hardwired to remember. Um, yeah, I've had to do pretty extreme things too. Well, I'm like on social media quite a lot. I post a lot of articles. I've got my own content to, to share out there. But I've, I've managed to completely block off the Facebook news feed. So I don't have Facebook on my, app, on, my, on my phone. I have like no way to get into it because I don't even know my password. So I use, you know, in Chrome, one of those extensions that makes sure that I can never see a post. So if I want to see someone's posts, I have to go specifically to their page and seek it out. That's the only way that, that I'll encounter other people's. Uh, That's other a people's great work. idea. And then on Twitter, I also uh, don't have that on my phone. And I like unfollowed basically everyone. And I, I just have like a list of bookmarks of five people to 10 people whose tweets I think are like consistently good. And I've had to... There's people whose tweets were good, but they would also post things that just made me anxious. They would post about like sure. something that they hated, something that they saw that they hated. And I just like, I can't get up every morning and just read no. about something that, like, what is the stupidest thing that someone said on Twitter while I was asleep? This is like not a good way to start the day. So I've, ha- I've had to have had to shut that out. Have you found individuals who share those things on Twitter? Because this is my personal experience, basically. I'll try to follow someone. And the second that someone becomes outspoken about politics is almost the second that I just can't, I just can't follow him anymore. I, I just, there's a famous philosopher, Jacques Ellul, I think, who says that there are no more political solutions. There are only technological solutions. And mm. if you define technology as the ability to do more with less, 
So it doesn't have to be a digital technology. It could be just a method of communication. It could be something in the real world. If you think about that message and if you think about the political message, I just don't see us being able to make any progress in politics anymore. I see it being important. I see it voting and participation. I, th I still think that's important. But what do you think about the future of politics? Is it is it useful to talk about at all? Yeah, I think I think I'm more pro politics probably than you are, and maybe like more more skeptical of tech uh, by itself. So I don't want to you know get up on my high, high horse because I'm like potentially political on social media uh, as well. Please do. I, yeah, yeah, please do. Oh, no. so on social media, I, I like do post political things, and I, I used to post more like outrageous things. I guess during 2016, I thought politics was going very badly. Hard, I was like, hard I was dismayed. Yeah, yeah, I was I was part of this this whole thing, and possibly I'll be drawn into it in 2020 again. But in the meantime, I've been like trying to post like more substantive political things, like actually trying to inform people how could things be better, what policy should we we be promoting. If there is an election on that day, then you tell people to go vote. I'm like happy to do that. But you don't want to be like making people mad all the other like 365 sure. days of the year. And I would say um, too, just a quick caveat that a lot of policies are kind of like technologies in and of themselves. I'm not trying to be like tricky in this this argument or like backtrack, but I, I do feel that the US constitution is like one of the best open source operating systems that's ever been devised. Um, it's not changed very often though. <laughs> it's, it's not changed very often, but I, I don't know if it's a feature or a bug. Um, but I guess you're saying you can build a lot on top of it. You can build a as, lot. As a yeah. And it's still, it's still possible to change. It might be too hard, but yeah. So just yeah. Tangent. So, so in terms of politics getting better, I mean, I think it was better three years ago. I think it was better 10 years ago. It was like almost certainly better like 30 years ago uh, in terms of like people being more constructive, I think, in, sure. in, in, in Congress. I mean, maybe I'm just like saying too much about my political views, but I think, no, no, you know, the, if the, someone other than Trump wins in 2020, then I think most of the Democratic candidates are like more reasonable people on balance. They'll like consider policy more on its merits and I think have more compassion for other people. So it's never going to be great, but I think, right. it, you know, you can improve it on the margin. There's this interesting thing with politics that in as much as things are going very badly, or like in as much as the system is very bad, that suggests that there's the scale of the problem is larger, more potential improvements that you could find. But it also suggests that it might be harder to make those changes. Gotcha. Because it's like there's a reason that it's bad, which is that like people aren't reasoning very carefully, say, about this, or that the, the voting system is bad. Sure. Um, which means that there's more improvement that you could make. On the other hand, it means that it's going to be harder to make that make that change. But overall, I think there is a lot of leverage from getting involved in politics, potentially. The number of decision makers in government relative to the size of the budgets, uh, there's just like a lot of money per person. And so even if you only have a relatively small chance of, you know, really changing what legislation gets passed or where the budgets are allocated, there can still be a lot of social impact uh, in expectation. I think technology in general has made the, the world better so far. In as much as it's uh, as you really just do distrust that technology is going to keep improving the world, then you should be very optimistic about the future. But like the one thing that you should really worry about is things getting massively off track, then you should be worried about these existential risks, these like catastrophic risks, because that's right. really the only threat then, if you just think technology is so, it, technology is generally so good uh, that like it's probably smooth sailing. The only way that that's gonna be stopped is some catastrophe that prevents us from like continuing to advance as a technological civilization. I think you see many of those risks do occur through politics. What if we had a totalitarianism enabled by some new technologies? What if we had wars between countries? These seem like you know threats to the advancement really? of humanity as a species. So, and it's going to be very hard to deal with those risks without entering politics to to some extent. And potentially also, even if you think that technology is overwhelmingly good most of the time, again, uh, if you're thinking very long term, what you have to worry about still is like, what about the low risk, the tail risk, where some technology really goes off the rails and makes things worse? Like we're talking about social media. People were so naively optimistic, I think, back in 2006 about, oh, this is going to connect everyone. We're all going to get to know one another Completely. and love one another. Yeah. It didn't pan out that way. And I think maybe I'm a bit more pessimistic about technology than you are. Or, 
I think that very often it's like a kind of a mixed blessing and that we should potentially be willing to just like advance technologically a little bit more slowly in order to more deliberately consider what impacts will this have, roll things out like more gradually than perhaps sure. than some entrepreneurs are keen to do. I think that's, I think it's a great idea because I would say my view on technology is I'm pretty, uh, by itself, I, I don't think anything about it because it's inert and it yeah. still is inert. There are a lot of humans that are manipulating it, they're interacting with it. But I think at the end of the day, it just comes down to the type of people that are wielding it and the type yeah. of people that have got all of this inherited technology because so much of it is inherited. So Bezos talks about this a lot where the infrastructure for him to build Amazon.com was largely already in place. The US postal system, you could just go down a list of other entrepreneurs who had paved the way for him. So in a sense, he was inheriting all this technology. The problem with inherited wealth is what we see when people win the lottery. You know, That's a small microcosm of what it's like to get a bunch of things free. So I think that the challenge of the next century is really going to be like, how do we get people to technology in a way that makes them appreciate it, understand it, and know how powerful they are when they get to have access to it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, so technology enables people to do what they what they want to do most of the time, uh, sure. more than they could before. But like humans are not perfect. We're like uh, kind of <laughs> a, a mixed species. And Got we have some like some bad impulses, right? Thinking to myself. Yeah. So then just kind of empowering us. Um, right. It's a mixed blessing because humans are kind of a mixed blessing. We have like positive impulses and negative ones. So for example, developing nuclear power and nuclear weapons, it like allowed us to do many good things that we want to do, like you know just develop our economies and improve our health and so on, but it also created these new weapons that potentially enable bad impulses of ours to do much more damage than they could before. Nuclear is kind of the classic case of a technology where it's like very clear that it created this new catastrophic downside that, that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. And I think that we should be worried about what is the next nuclear power thing where it's like, yes, it has positive outcomes that, that could happen from, but it could also be extremely negative. And so we need to invent it and scale it up and like make sure that who's using it like in, in a very judicious and thoughtful manner rather than just like, well, just give it to everyone. So I have synthetic biology in my head as the yeah. example of something that could potentially be really, really bad. Are you familiar with the precautionary principle at all that Taleb talks about with in reference to like synthetic bio and GMOs and stuff like that? Yes, uh, I think the precautionary principle has a lot going for it. I kind of prefer the reactionary principle, which is like okay, a slight cool. modification of it. Which is saying, so precautionary principle is if something could potentially cause human extinction or like some enormous disaster mm -hmm. that would be irreversible, then you shouldn't do it until it's proven absolutely to be safe. Sounds pretty good. The concern might be though that sometimes inaction can also create risks. So for example, it could be that we need nuclear weapons or like nuclear power or like we need these technologies to diffuse other threats that we face. Completely, like and we so, need synthetic biology to diffuse a virus from space or wh like whatever the worry is. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's more about trying to minimize the overall risk, all things considered. Potentially that involves rolling the dice with some new thing that could be risky in order to like lower other risks. It's kind of a, it's a slight modification. Which makes, the which makes sense. Like somebody better know a lot about synthetic biology, but the question of who that person, <laughs> yeah. those people are, it becomes a real, real issue. Yeah, I guess you see this with, for example, climate change. I guess I didn't mention earlier, I might just explain that. Totally believe in climate change. I think it's going to be like bad, but I think it's very unlikely to cause human extinction on or like a collapse to such a level that we could never recover. I suppose also a reason that we don't talk about it as much is that fortunately, there's so many people working on it already. It's like a very well acknowledged risk. Uh, hundreds of billions of dollars really spent on, on on combating climate change. And there's like millions of people who's top of mind for so many, many people. people. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very happy that that's the case. But it suggests that one extra person, one extra listener to this podcast, uh, if they go in and work on climate change, probably will make a smaller impact there than they could doing something more obscure, like improving relations between the US and China, Sure. which seems like plausibly on a similar scale of importance, given like how bad conflict between them could be. 
So uh, just, just bracket that. But you see, for example, with geoengineering, people completely understandably worry about how that could go incredibly badly. But if you like start changing, you know, how much sure. how much heat is hitting the earth by using like sulfates, putting them up into the atmosphere, that could end catastrophically. And so the precautionary principle would say, oh, you shouldn't shouldn't do that because we're never going to be able to prove that it's like completely safe and it could end very badly. On the other hand, you have to weigh that against the risk of climate change itself. So it could, we could end up having to roll the dice on geoengineering if we're not smart enough to, to uh, stop climate change before it gets really bad. And we're going to have to at a certain point if we want to terraform any type of celestial yeah. body or other exoplanet. I guess people would be less worried about it on Mars. That, that seems like a safe place to, to, to have a go. Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating though because it looks like we're going to have to learn how to heat Mars up in a major, major way if there's any hope of geoengineering it because it's almost like our problems here are signposts, like mm. our biggest faults, whether it's like heating the atmosphere up or whatever the case is, are going to point to solutions. So that's, yeah, that, that makes the proactive, what do you, what'd you call it? The proactive principle. Proactionary principle. principle. Yeah, yeah I, I like that a lot. So when it comes to space and uh, threats from wherever, whether they're asteroids or comets or mm. you know anything like that, is there anything that's on your radar or your team's radar? Yeah, so threats from nature. Basically, fortunately, we know that risks from the natural world have to be relatively low because we've managed to survive. Well, humanity has been around a million years. Life on Earth has been around for four billion years or something like that, while these risks have been there in the background. And we're still here. So, and, and when it comes to asteroids and comets, for example, we can see, we can basically estimate the, f- the frequency of like large asteroids very accurately by looking at the moon, looking at other planets, mm. just counting them, or like looking at the record on, on Earth as well. And I can't remember the exact figure, but I think like the risk of a large asteroid hitting the Earth in any given year was something like one in 10,000 or one in 100,000. So that's like absolutely something that we should be concerned about. Uh, and fortunately, NASA has gone out and looked at, uh, I think they've like indexed most of the large asteroids and they're gradually working down and finding smaller asteroids. Uh, I think there's still some issues with comets that are coming from like unusual angles, more darker objects that are somewhat harder to see. There's still some some risk there and we should absolutely categorize all of those. We should also develop technology for deflecting them, which mm. uh, I think NASA's planetary defense systems, they have some group that's looking into this, like what would we do with asteroids? I think um, it's in the nascent stages. I, I don't even think they're anywhere close to being able to deflect something. I, when it's a long way out, yes, but for yeah, like right. those dark objects that you mentioned, I think that that's a major, major problem. That would be the the trouble. Yeah, if you can get it early enough, then like relatively small nudges, as you're saying, like yeah. deflect it. For, One far nuclear missile away. is enough to the, deflect. Yeah. yeah. Did Did you see that article in the New York Times recently? There was a paper looking at what would happen if we yeah blew up a nuclear missile or, or a hydrogen bomb on an asteroid. No. So basically, unfortunately, it seems like it breaks apart, but then the force of gravity pulls it back together again. It's, uh, well. it's very hard to break it up enough that it doesn't reform, that it doesn't just like pull itself back together. So that seems like deflection. Well, we have to go harder probably on the deflection thing rather than the like break it up option. And I think too, um, are you familiar with light sails at all and like the light sail technology? I think that that is the probably the most promising area where you could potentially like land some bots or robots. They would attach a light sail and then you just have to make it more reflective, as I recall, because then it's like, like if you paint it white, for example, on one side, the side that's facing Mm. the sun, then I think just basically when light hits an object and it reflects it, then it does slightly nudge it in the other direction. And there's like enough energy coming from the sun that it would very gradually change the angle just enough to not hit the earth. If you get it early enough, it might be challenging. So I absolutely worry about like natural risk, like asteroids, super volcanoes, another one. But I think if we destroy ourselves this century, I think it's far more likely to be the result of new things that humans have created, like changes of circumstances that we've caused ourselves rather than just the background uh, risk from from nature. Things that we can't predict now or something specific? Well, okay. So what, what, what's the argument here? We could potentially link to it to a paper that, that tries to weigh up this like, how great is the risk of catastrophe from humans versus from nature? Concludes that the risk from humans is much greater. So one thing is we just we can look at all these risks. We can look at supervolcanoes. We can see how often they happen. It's very rare. Look at asteroids. See how often it happens. Very rare. Look at other planets. Like how often do they get irradiated by a supernova? Very rare. 
but we just don't have a similar argument that like nuclear war is a one in a hundred thousand per year thing. That just seems you have to be so overconfident. You have to feel like I really understand what causes nuclear wars. And I know that like on every level, it's like absolutely not going to happen. Like, this could never happen by accident in order to think that it was as low as that. I mean, I think realistically, the risk of nuclear war per year is more like one in a thousand, possibly even one in a hundred. Which, because, already, which yeah, already means that like nuclear war alone is like much larger than the risk from asteroids. Definitely. If you just think about the amount of people it takes to actually detonate a nuclear weapon, it's not that it's not that many at all. So yeah. that would just give you and, a... And we've had so many near misses over the yeah. years. Um, I mean, fortunately, I guess now we're like probably safer than we were during the Cold War. The technology is somewhat better. There's like it, things are a bit less heated. We can't be sure that that's going to persist for the next hundred years. Not at all. It's like we well, could end up with a nuclear Cold War between China and the US. Both of them are modernizing their weaponry. So, so is Russia. And so many of these near misses are terrifying. I'm, I don't know any of the stories off the top of my head, but do you know any that you can share? Oh, yeah. So an interesting one is, um, so Akapov is the, is the name to search for for this one. So during, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a nuclear armed Russian submarine that was uh, hanging around Cuba. U.S. people might recall uh, was uh, trying to uh, embargo the island or trying to prevent like any ships coming mm-hmm. in and out. Probably the most tense week of the Cold War. Now, in order to enforce this uh, embargo, some U.S. destroyer ships near Cuba started. They found that there was submarines down there. They started dropping dummy depth charges to try to force these submarines to surface. Turned out that they were so they were nuclear, like fully nuclear armed. Russian submarines that didn't realize that they were dummy depth charges. So they were stuck down there for hours being depth charged constantly by these ships. They believed that World War III must have started or this otherwise wouldn't have happened. And the commander of this submarine wanted to use nuclear weapons to destroy the ships, which they easily could have done. They could have just launched their their weapons Mm -hmm. and destroyed like the whole US fleet there. Now, this this is before or after the Bay? This is after the Bay of Pigs, right? Uh, This is after the Bay of Pigs. The Cuban Missile Crisis was partly a reaction to the Bay of Pigs. So the captain of the submarine wants to do this. Fortunately for humanity, the only reason we're here is that the commander of a larger submarine fleet happened to be on that particular submarine that time. And his decision took precedence. And this is Arkhipov. And Arkhipov therefore was able to override the captain of the submarine and say, uh, no, we're not going to use them. We're just going to stay down here. And so you have to imagine they're down there being bombed for hours. The temperature in the ship was getting like 45 degrees. They're like passing out from heat. They're also running out of oxygen. So there's a high chance that they'll like either die of heat stroke or die of carbon dioxide poisoning. and Or the depth but, charges that they don't even know. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah which they didn't realize were, were dummies. So Akapov, I guess he suspect. well, I don't know exactly what his reasoning was. I don't know whether we've actually ever gotten that in record. We, we, we may. But he may well have just thought, well, if it's World War Three, then we're all dead anyway. So, But if it's not, then if I launch this, then this is probably going to lead to an all-out war between the US and, and Russia. Basically, the US had decided that if they got like nuked, then they would like retaliate all out. So then they would like destroy Cuba with all of their nukes. And then interestingly, it turned out that there was lots of nuclear weapons, like much more nuclear weapons than anyone realized on Cuba or already on the island. And that they had independent launch authority to like destroy the United States with them if they were attacked. So this was an, like an incredibly fragile situation. And one person like this, this Arkhipov person with their decision to not launch it, to override the leader of that ship, basically saved the world from like a no very likely save the world from all that Armageddon. And, and that's the kind of, like, I think a lot of people have this sense, oh, smart people are in charge. The world's no, basically no, no. safe. The world is kind of stable and we'll just get better. Yeah. I, I don't think that it is like that. I think the world it's is not. extremely unstable and chaotic and things can go badly or, or well, depending on decisions that that, that that people make. It's not all predetermined and it's not all, for sure, it's not all safe. Completely agree. And especially in the military there, it's a scenario where I was fortunate to brief a uh, round table of generals after I left the military to talk to them about the military's lack of a useful reintegration program and how they might go about building a better one. And there's some great people there, but 
in order to fix the military, it's very important that we be open and honest about the uh, caliber of people that are making decisions at the top. And there are some people there that are uh, dangerously unbalanced. And it's a, a topic that is, um, you know, people have told me like not to talk about it publicly and that's a threat. I'm going to do it. It's important to talk about because like Kubrick made Dr. Strangelove for a reason. Like it was not just an artistic statement. It was a profound statement about the lack of philosophy and vision and long-term thinking at the upper ranks of the military. And this is a really important topic. So I'm wondering right now, like I'm already thinking like, are they having this case study of Arkhipov or what was his name? Arkhipov. Ar yeah. Arkhipov. Is that a case study that's taught? In, oh, yeah. uh, it has to be, right? Yeah, it's reasonably well known, although I think some of the details only came out like within the last 10 or 20 years. So if you want to read that story in full, uh, you can read uh, The Doomsday Machine by Daniel Ellsberg, oh, uh, who actually cool. interviewed on the on the show for a couple of hours. So Daniel Ellsberg uh, leaked the Pentagon Papers, you may recall. Sure. He was involved like forming nuclear policy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, trying to figure out exactly what to say. So he was like very central uh, to, to this whole thing. And at the time, he thought that he was doing the right thing, that he was lowering uh, the, the risk with the kind of the messages that he was recommending that they send to the Soviet Union, and then later realized that everything that he was doing was actually making the situation worse, which he describes in the book like oh, he, he was so ignorant of like what was actually happening on the ground that right. he was constantly making recommendations that he think could have caused a nuclear war that's fascinating um, I'll, yeah, I'll check it out so th that's a subject too where with our increased reliance on uh, computer systems and software and with cyber terrorism it's something that i think is a very real threat because the us and china are doing this ridiculous and russia too for that matter and every major superpower are doing this uh running a bunch of horrible experiments where they're hacking, they're trying to hack each other's systems nonstop. And I think that the rate at which they're going to stumble upon miscommunications and miss, you know, mixed signals again and again is uh, terrifying, yeah. right? Like, so how do you view cyber war and cyber terrorism? Is there anything you're thinking about there? Yeah, so th there are other people who, who are better experts on this than me. I know it's an area of like great interest to people who are concerned about like AI policy or AI strategy. In as much as this is rolled out into kind of military or intelligence like applications, it's like how could that be destabilizing or not? So obviously, for example, if we develop like machine learning systems that become extremely good at hacking like the other side's computers and potentially destroying them or like making them not function when, mm -hmm. when you want them to, that is very destabilizing from a nuclear deterrence point of view because you could potentially like use this to like quickly hack the other side's nuclear weapons and then prevent them from firing them in some way, and then you could you have like the potential to, to do a first strike and the other side knowing that this is a possibility that they might deactivate your weapons will want to fire first so destabilizing in that way i guess it also creates this kind of new class of attack that people don't know what to make of so we know that if like the us shoots a russian ship on its own territory that that's basically a declaration of war so they know not to do that but then what if you're like hacking you know the other side's military systems sure you know just collecting data that's that's not really a declaration of war that doesn't that's going to start a hot war but what if you start like deactivating them is that like an act of war what um, if you inadvertently oh yeah, yeah you inadvertently do that uh, and what if they don't know who's invading the system what if it's like not the united states but they think that it is it creates a lot of like yeah uncertainty about attribution people don't know what the norms are around this that and which can potentially create like escalation that, that no one really intended and that uncertainty of the who the actors are or who the uh in machine learning and ai parlance like who are the agents that have been created and like what are they doing yeah. is uh and where did they come from that's something that is being I'm a big fan of Bitcoin and blockchain, but it is possible now to have an anonymous group who built something that many, many people use and they have still no idea about who created it or why. Yeah. Um, so the ability to create these anonymous agents is uh, it's a real thing. Yeah, there's um, 
a really good book. Unfortunately, the name of it is escaping me. It's, it's about Stuxnet, this like extremely advanced cyber attack that the US and Israel put together against um, Iran's Iran, nuclear, Iran, so nuclear facilities. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't remember the name of the book, but like, the last third of it like moves on from that specific case to say, well, how is, the, how is cyber warfare going to change the nature of war? Mm. As I recall, I think the author was a little bit more worried than I am. I feel like probably like this seems like something that we should be able to, to, to figure out without it escalating. But in as much as we know that like the current thing hasn't led to war yet, any change is like makes should make you nervous because you're like, well, the current situation, we have some evidence that it's stable. But this new thing where we have all kinds of new attacks that people can engage in, that it's probably more likely to be worse than better. Uh, sure. Yeah. And if it's better, we probably won't, won't know until like we're onto the next thing. And like every time you change it, you're like rolling the dice with this new circumstance. So what are you, if you have time to take take it away from work and relax a little bit, what are you reading? What are you writing? What are you thinking about that is not work related? Oh, that's not work related. Yes. Oh, uh, I, know, I know that so, could be tricky. <laughs> so uh, I studied economics. I have a background in economics. And I think I've never really been able to kick the habit of reading economics blogs and trying to thinking as a microeconomist, like trying to understand like why is unemployment where it is? Like how is the macroeconomy doing? It's like a golden age for economists in terms of blogging and publishing, right? There's so many great minds and voices out there. Yeah. So I, for example, I read Marginal Revolution Tyler Cohen, every day. Tyler great. Cohen and Alex yeah. Tabarrok. Cohen, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah they're, 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 they're fantastic. I, guess, what, what I saw you had uh, Brian Kaplan, I think, linked mm. up, and he has some great research on education, which kind of challenges the uh, the higher education model. I like yeah. that. I disagree with Brian on many things, but he's like an amazing writer and a very clear thinker. Like, even when you disagree with him, you know exactly why and exactly what he believes, which yeah. I really appreciate. Yeah, he's got three different books. So, was it the recent one, The Case Against Education? The one about kids, too. The one I think about, like yeah. larger selfish families are happier, selfish families. Yeah. Yeah, where he basically argues that parents have much less influence on how their children turn hmm. out than they think. So, they should just have more kids and like put less effort into each one because it wasn't making much of a difference anyway. Right. Uh, and then the third one is uh, the, the myth of the rational voter, where he argues that kind of the reason that politics is broken is that voters don't know what they're talking about <laughs> to a large extent uh, and he like you know brings to brings to bear a bunch of evidence uh, evidence for that so i could definitely recommend uh, brian kaplan's books uh, even even though cool. i disagree with him on many issues what about fiction too what, what's your view on fiction is it useful do you read it at all if yeah, so I, what, I don't what read do you read any fiction i'm afraid i uh, just what what is the reason for that i guess you know i read it when i was a teenager i read it when i was a kid i think school I just, prescribed or did you come both. across it on your own so I guess as I got older, it just became school prescribed. And then I kind of just, I mean, I read a lot of books. I read like probably about a book every week. Sure. But it's like almost always uh, nonfiction. I think just I always prefer to read a nonfiction book to, to a fiction book. I suppose I do have a slight kind of case against fiction. Or I think like people might not be nervous enough about fiction, like in terms of like how it can change your opinions without like necessarily being grounded in reality. So I think it's a huge risk. Yeah, because we were talking about this before we started recording where, you know, Hollywood or the media, they have this like, movie trailer version of life and yeah. you know what you see in the movies is not it yeah. never happens in the real world so yeah it's just i suppose it's like nonfiction books can be true like they can tell you like things that are true and things that are useful or they can try to mislead you but there at least there's, there's this constraint that like they're at least always claiming to like refer to actual to things in the actual world to like teach you lessons based on, or hopefully based on like data and like observations that the that the authors made with fiction uh, writers, I guess they, they also hope to improve your understanding of the world. And no doubt in many cases they do. But because they can like make up examples, they can make up cases. And I think it's like very hard as a reader, fundamentally for your brain to like distinguish between like things that it's read in fiction that are like not real at an instinctive level and things that, that have actually happened. So there's plenty of examples of people writing books that kind of have you know, very bad messages. You can have like 
pro-Nazi fiction. Like, why not? You can have a, a story in which, like, the Jews are terrible and, like, doing all these horrible things. And because you're not actually constrained by, like, real life in that, it's, it's, in fact, like, easier to promote mendacious, like, harmful and inaccurate messages through fiction if you want to. I guess, fortunately, most of the time, fiction authors are, like, good people and they're trying to <laughs> try to improve the world. They're not trying to promote sure. horrible messages. Yeah. But I think that people should be, like, cautious about kind of what, what, what fiction they read. Because you, cause you, you're giving, agree. like, access to this cool part of your brain to, like, an author who is not who is not only constrained by their own like moral fiber. I completely agree because I think a lot of fiction is create authors that don't want to acknowledge this, but fiction, the most popular kinds especially are created when an author is trying to known or un. sometimes they know it, sometimes they don't. They're basically trying to resolve traumas in their past and they don't want to talk about this, but it's clearly the case where if you have anyone who's trained the least bit in psychology, they can look at fiction and basically see what that person was struggling with and wh mm. where they've been hurt, where they've been abused. And this is great that the author is able to process that in a healthy way and turn it into art. However, it's not so clear if it's great for millions and millions of people to, to read this. Maybe it's therapeutic for them. I, I tend to think that that's why books like Harry Potter are, are therapeutic is because the author was trying to work through something through fantasy and many other people had to work through something similar. However, I think that the risks of fiction go unacknowledged. Generally. Yeah. So you need to know who the author is. Why are they writing the fiction? Because I do think there is great fiction out there, but I completely agree that it carries some risks. Yeah. I mean, it, it can also help you get inside someone's head and understand how exactly. other people think. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think people know that. Uh, yeah. And that, that should be acknowledged. It can also be also be very good. But yeah, there are these risks that people don't talk about too much. Or at least I think people who love literature and love fiction don't don't care, seem to care about that specific downside uh, quite so much. I agree. I mean, uh, especially with movies. For, well, there's this like whole bias as well with stories. That yes. For a story like... For a story to be interesting, it has to have like a struggle. It has to have kind of a main character. It has to have an arc, at least most of the time. Maybe like incredible directors or incredible authors can make something outside of that scheme work. But it means that like things about the world that don't fit into into that, that don't have like any key actors that have changed it. It's just kind of in, uh, impersonal systems, for example, operating where no one really could have fixed the problem. So there's like there's no like struggle that one person can make to try to fix something. Those things kind of just just get left out completely. So, for example, people talk about with AI. There's this like there's this potential scenario where like AI advances very quickly, has goals that aren't those of humanity, sure. and then just kind of kills us all uh, very quickly. Conceivable scenario, but you could never actually make a film out of that because it would be so boring. <laughs> because it's like there would be no ability. Like in this hypothetical, say it's like so much better than us. It just like kills us all very quickly. There's no struggle. Everyone just dies very fast because say like coats the atmosphere in dioxin. I'm not saying that's like terribly likely, but the thing is, you'll never see a movie about that because you can't get could, fifty to hundred million dollars to make that yeah <laughs> or but, I, I don't know once don't want to say never because all you have is, is a bunch of people working in an office until like suddenly everyone dies and then the movie ends there's, there's no arc there there's no you, you yeah. need you need like a character who could potentially change it so uh, there's probably like lots of other examples of like important stories that don't get don't get put into fiction all that much i mean the wire was an interesting example where it like tried there to portray go. like yeah. life uh, more as it actually is the depth of the characters and the fact that, and try to, I guess, actually understand the political economy. It's understand the public choice aspect of this. It's like, well, it's not all just a matter of whether people are virtuous or not. It's a matter of the incentives that they face and the constraints really? that they face within yep. bureaucracies. That works really well in that case, but it takes someone who's very talented to pull that off. Most authors are not even close. And I think it takes a degree of creative freedom that the second you become an author and you have your work optioned, good luck ever yep. influencing what happens to it after that point. Because most authors who write the book they're not directly involved in writing the screenplay. And then the work is packaged by Hollywood after that. And the second you get into that territory, you don't have creative control. And it's a tricky subject to talk about, but most authors are powerless. They are marginalized because they're basically trained to write on their own as a solo person. And because of that, they aren't incentivized to build up 
a team of supporters around them. So it's, you know, a big corporation or media conglomerate can steamroll over the creative instincts of an author. Like it's, it's not even up for contest. So. Yeah. I guess I don't know whether it's sensible for people to take advice on fiction from someone who doesn't read it, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> to, no. to, to take it with a pinch of salt. No, no, I'm, because I mean, that's, you're kind of like voting with your actions there yeah. and that's, uh, it's to be determined, like whether that's like a, a, you know, a good strategy or not, but at the same time, that's how you make really tough statements is through yeah. your actions over a period of like years. If you're going to double down on that, all for it. Yeah, I suppose it's a bias as well. If the only people who talk about literature are the people who love it, yeah, you're getting a selection effect there as well. Definitely. Yeah. So outside of that, you mentioned you're getting ready to move back to the UK soon. Is that where you're originally from? Uh, I'm Australian, actually. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So I lived in, grew up in Australia, lived there for, I guess, until I was 26 and then uh, moved to the UK. So cool. 80,000 hours and the Center for Effective Altruism started in Oxford. And I went to join them about like six months after after that was founded. Oh, awesome. And we were there, for, I guess, for four or five years. Uh, and then then we moved to uh, California. Uh, we've been here for two and a half years and now we're moving back. Love it. So uh, one of our co-founders is actually, he's on vacation in Australia right now. Hope you're working there, Ian. Uh, just just <laughs> kidding. Um, so what do you miss about Australia? What mm. what could America or the UK learn from Australia? Yeah, interesting. So I think Americans are very hardworking uh, to credit, like more optimistic, more of a can-do attitude. I guess this is, I think this is probably true across America, but especially true in the Bay Area. Uh, people are like very committed to changing the world through working very hard and very ambitious. I guess I, there's something I like about the kind of the laconic like skepticism and cynicism and pessimism <laughs> of Australians, which like maybe is less conducive to being an entrepreneur, but it's like perhaps a bit more realistic, uh, and it leads to like better humor. I think better, pretty better useful jokes. for staying alive. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. yeah I think there's a reason. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that we evolved this. Um, what are some examples of things that Australians uh, or your friends are just so skeptical about, or anything you can share? Mm, I guess in general, I'd say Australians are more cynical about human nature perhaps and also just when someone's like oh yeah uh, so americans will come and be like yes i'm going to start this business it's going to be amazing i'm going to like change the world i'm going to invent this new thing uh you couldn't really do that in australia because people would just take the piss out of you to such a high degree if you're like the, the vanity or the like hubris that you would have about really believing that your thing is going to work would sink you socially so instead you have to be like much more modest it's like i'm trying to do this thing i'm like maybe it will work out uh, kind of being more pessimistic about about your your prospects yeah, so that obviously has a downside. I guess I do, I think sometimes Americans, because there isn't this constraint of like people will pick on you if you're too optimistic, mm. uh, they can be a little bit more arrogant and perhaps a little bit more narcissistic or a bit delusional about how well things are going to go. Whereas that gets like, it doesn't get beaten. It gets beaten out of you socially, not physically uh, in, in Australia. And I think in like other Commonwealth countries a bit more. In Australia, people criticize this. They call it tall poppy syndrome. It's like people who are uh, like, who stand out, who try to achieve great things, get like cut down because people don't like it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you get this, I think you get similar phenomenon in many countries. I think Scotland is also famous for having this. Um, I think that is the origin story of humanity in a sense, because yeah. so if you're familiar with like any type of uh, anthropology, like most societies are organized around human sacrifice and like the world's most uh, widespread religion is a religion that's based on human sacrifice. So a bunch of listeners just dropped off. They're like, what the hell, what the hell are you? <laughs> What the hell are you talking about? How dare you insult me? But if you study uh, like the works of like Rene Girard or anyone, they would agree with, they'd be like, of course there's tall poppy syndrome because the best and the brightest or people who are different are targeted and scapegoated, whether they're ostracized or isolated or beaten down over a period of time by people. Uh, that's the human story uh, in a sense. Like we're hardwired to do that. It might be out of a drive for self-preservation. It might be because we're inherently evil. What, what do you think? <laughs> oh, I mean, so I think it's, it's more complicated than that. So 
if you're interested in learning a lot about this from like a, an even deeper like historical perspective, there's this great book called A Hierarchy in the Forest, which uh, looks at kind of evolution of human psychology and looks at other primates as well. So humans are somewhat unique in the animal world in having like lots of individuals that we're not like bees or ants. We're not like, so we don't have like the genetic relatedness thing to fix this, but we have groups of people with relatively little hierarchy where anyone who tries to become the alpha and like lead a group is like very constrained. And basically we evolved this somewhat unique uh, system for sustaining this, which is that if any one person tries to dominate others, say you got like the biggest male, the most, mm -hmm. the strongest male who could in principle dominate or like beat any or anyone else in the group in a fight in a tribe of say 50 people. Basically in order to sustain cooperation, where you didn't just have like one individual dominating the group and like taking all of the food uh, and like partners for themselves, whenever like any one person tries to like dominate the group, a group of the others will band together and like beat them back. So you get like the second and third strongest people like will beat the beat the first one. And so no one is allowed to try to like get two up themselves. No one is in this system. No one mm -hmm. is allowed to try to dominate others because then other people will band together and defeat them collectively. This turned out, I think, to be like a very successful model uh, for a species that needed to sustain cooperation in like larger groups than, than most other species do. You see like different versions of this kind of system in, in other primate species. So yeah, you can read all about that and like why it worked in humans and, and not, 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 not others in that book. I think there's another aspect to it, which is at least some people fear that if uh, a member of their social group, it becomes very successful, then they're going to leave them because they'll be like too good for them. So I guess you see that with families, uh, potentially a lot with friendship groups. What if they like do go get this PhD? What if they do like get this great job in DC? Then they're going to be like leaving the town that they're from. Sure. They're going to be leaving the friendship group. And now you get this brain drain and people kind of, one way to resist that is to like sabotage the success of the most talented people in the group so they don't right. leave. I mean, that's like quite sad. It's like a bit evil in a way, but it's like perhaps also understandable. Uh, oh, it's, it's, like, it's, it's kind of human understandable. nature, right? And I think too, people are scared to figure out how fast or to what degree their friends are growing, progressing or learning and then finding others. So when I think about making friendships or hiring people or recruiting or anything like that, I think about like who is growing at a similar pace to me and to our team and everything. Because if you're not pegging your rate of learning or if your rate of learning is way different from someone else, it's going to be hard to associate with them after a period of time. Because, yeah. you know, after a single year, if you, you mentioned reading a book a week earlier, like if you read a book a week, you're going to be very, very different and have not that much in common than with someone who hasn't read at all. So how do you think about making friends, keeping friends? And um, obviously you're a driven person. How are you approaching that? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this issue of, uh, you know, I've kind of outgrown someone and like, I'm not going to be friends with them anymore. There's something that's like understandable about that, but there's also something that's like a bit disgusting about that. And you'd imagine that like, you just like leave behind all of your like family and friends because like, oh, I'm too smart for them. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. What to, um, to be honest, I guess I haven't confronted that all that much lately because so many of my friends come through work or come through my social circle that's associated with effective altruism, such that we're kind of all on this journey together, working together to, to, to solve these problems and understand them better. I think it does really pay to potentially like have two quite different classes of friends where you have like, oh, these are the people who are like, to some extent, work colleagues or like work associates or like people who are part of the mission that I'm trying to accomplish in life sure. that's like externally focused. And then also just have people who you're friends with, not for like any like- You've known forever or as yeah. long as possible. Something exactly. Like that. Yeah. yeah, people where you're not going, if they don't have exactly the same interests as you, you're still going to be in, like, because yeah. it's, it's a personal thing where you like know one another very well. And that, that could be like very, very hard to replace later on. So I think, 
Yeah, I guess in effective altruism, people who are very involved, it's like potentially academics as well, kind of all of their friends end up being academics, potentially even within the same field, same academics. Uh, I suppose we have this issue as well that you can end up like becoming a bit like closed where it's like so many of the people you know kind of share your views and they've been selected for that. I do try to push against that and try to make friends randomly in, in other areas or find something that's like same. nearby, potentially like economics or, yeah. or politics. These are like other you know areas of my intellectual life. Yeah, uh, because what you mentioned with academics, it happens, everybody's prone to do that, right? It's easier for us to make these relationships and friendships with people who are doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but there are definitely trade-offs with that. So what is the biggest problem? This is one of the last big questions I'll ask here, but what's the biggest problem with higher education and academics? And is there anything you're thinking about that, you know, if we solved this one thing or this basket of things, we could fix the whole system? Yeah, well, I guess on the student side uh, in the US, it's probably price. I guess, like, yeah, there's like lots of people talking sure. about There's something like, there's a lack of competition with like new universities springing up to provide good education. I think it's probably like something to do with the fact that like it's a lot about signaling and prestige it seems to like create dynamics where like the, the oldest group can just charge a very large amounts and doesn't have to grow, provide like a service to more students. So that's like one thing that's going uh, wrong on the student side in the US that a lot of people have written about. I guess on the on the academic side or the, or the research side, I mean, there's like a lot of just bad incentives that people have talked about. I don't know that I have like super original points here, but but the fact that academics, I think, are not rewarded very much in proportion to how actually true their, their papers are is uh, quite bad. And they're not promoted in proportion to that either. Mm-hmm. They're like promoted in part to like how many papers can get published, which is like how many results can you make to seem true, which involves just like running lots of studies, like running lots of statistical tests. And whether like they're going to replicate or not doesn't really like change whether you get, get tenure or not. So there's... I mean, people have suggested lots of different different ways to solve this. The problem is it's like whenever you have a system that has like broken incentives, it's often not in the interest of the people who have accrued the most power within that system sure. to change it because they were winning on the previous game and they right. don't know whether they'll win under under the new regime. It also, I mean, it is just actually difficult because let's say that you started like checking academics work to like see whether their findings replicate. That's so costly. It's like you can't actually do that most of the time. It's totally impractical. Right. So you have to have like other, you have to figure out other proxies to like determine whether these papers are actually reliable that don't involve running running the experiment again. Which gets us you know, back to machine learning and AI. Hopefully like some advances in NLP can start mm-hmm. to figure out and then maybe tying that with some of the models that your team's creating to figure out how valuable things are and yeah, yeah that, that, that could be cool. Uh, I think IARPA is actually funding a group that's trying to use machine learning to detect like what are the tells on papers for whether they uh, have real result, whether the result oh, is true or not. And I suspect that they're going to find probably quite a lot of material to work with there. That um, Yeah, that's really, really important. You can look um, at the kind of statistical tests that they're doing, for example, and like, you know, what do the numbers like add up? Like how close was the p-value or what kind of language are they using? I suspect there'll be a lot of like giveaways for whether something like, yeah, how sincerely they're interested in the truth of the matter they were. Cool. And um, last thought here, I'm really curious to get your take on, so for all our listeners out there, many, many people are successfully employed in technology. They're executives, they're uh, high performers, they're business owners. What would you leave them with? What would you challenge them with? Or what thought experiment would you provide to them? Yeah, it's interesting. So I guess if I I was going to challenge people, I'd say that just growing the economy is not the best way to improve the world. Uh, You can create value by building businesses and uh, inventing new products and uh, growing the economy, just providing value to consumers. But there's so many people trying to do that. Mm -hmm. There's like 80, 90 trillion dollars of like money that goes out effectively through the economy to incentivize people to deliver products to to customers. The market is very good at doing what the market does. In fact, it's like it's made humanity much, much richer than it is before. We, We continue to get, you know, big growth in GDP. People are becoming richer all the time. If you want to make 
the biggest difference possible, you should look at what stuff is more neglected. What isn't already getting done? What aren't there good incentives to do? And very often that's doing something other than entrepreneurship where the personal rewards for succeeding are, are very large. You can make a lot of money, have a good time, get a lot of prestige. Look for things that are going to be systematically neglected because you, there is no business model that incentivizes people to provide this service. Like what is the business model for improving relations between the US and China? Maybe there is one, but a lot of the time there just isn't, which means it's going to be massively undersupplied by the market. And you potentially can go out uh, and deliver those services that the world desperately needs, those kind of global public goods that are not going to be provided by the market and which the government just might be not, not be smart enough to, to provide itself because we just don't have great systems for making politics function either. And you might stumble on an incredible business model in the yeah. process. And, yeah. Like yeah, Elon Musk has done that a couple of times now. There, there absolutely are opportunities to solve these things through business, but I think there's many opportunities to do very valuable things outside of business that people are not finding because the incentives to, to look for them, uh, the selfish personal incentives to look for them uh, are not there so much. So if, you like, if you're motivated by altruism, if you're motivated by improving the world, then you can like look for other methods as well. Cool. I love it. Thanks so much. And for everyone listening, see you next time. It's been a fantastic pleasure. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.